From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. At this hour, the state legislature is being gaveled into order as the 2024 session gets underway. We'll look at some of the big issues they're likely to tackle. I'm Tia Mitchell, live in Washington. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr has signed on to a legal brief supporting Donald Trump's effort to have his name restored to Colorado's presidential primary ballot. The brief from a number of GOP attorneys general says keeping Trump off the ballot would lead to chaos at the polls. Plus, we'll preview a trial starting tomorrow challenging the security of Georgia's Dominion voting machines. It's a major case, but this one isn't being brought by pro-Trump allies. Sam Olins and Michael Thurman join us on today's program. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Tia Mitchell joins us from Washington. Tia, big week for you. I think the Senate's back in session today. The House has its first quorum call not till tomorrow night, right? Right. But at the end of the day, they're back this week. It's the 2024 session, and there's lots of work to do. Well, there's lots of work to do. The question is whether there's a lot that they will accomplish. We all know that, as you well know, that in 2023, they managed to pass, I think, fewer than 30 bills, two of which were the renaming of post offices. <laughs> so they're hoping for a somewhat more productive uh, uh, session now that 2024 is here, especially since it's an election year. Right. You're right. Only 27 bills became law in 2023. Um, It was a really unproductive year in Congress, mainly because of the meltdowns in the House among Republicans. Um, And the crazy thing is House Republicans are trying to project more stability, but their majority is even thinner. So we'll see how that plays out. And of course, uh, as the week goes on and when you're back with us this week, we'll talk more about the specific issues, especially uh, getting spending bill passed, which is going to be a problem for uh, Speaker Mike Johnson. But we'll get into that as the week goes on. We also are joined uh, on the show today by uh, Michael Thurman. He is the CEO of DeKalb County. He's held any number of uh, posts in his public career. But today, Mike, we want to introduce you as the author of James Oglethorpe, Father of Georgia, a book I know you've been working on for a very long time, which is finally going to be published in February. And I know you're excited about it, in part because people don't know the story of James Oglethorpe, who went from what, slave trader to abolitionist? Yes, Georgia's founding father breathed life into the international abolitionist movement. I think it's something that Georgians should celebrate and emulate, and I'm excited about the opportunity to share. 
Well, thank you for joining us uh, today, and we look forward to seeing uh, your book. Sam Olins, former Attorney General of Georgia, is with us as well. Sam, thanks so much for being here. We're not going to get into it um, right away, but at some point today, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts as a former Attorney General about this um, friend of the court brief that um, Chris Carr, current Attorney General, filed trying to get Donald Trump back on the Colorado uh, ballot. He's, it's a, a, a an amicus brief that went to the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, thanks for being here, Sam. Oh, my pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you all. And Michael, I think I only pre-ordered your book like four min- four months ago. So <laughs> it's going to be, you know... Yeah, let's face, pages, you know. let, let's face it, Sam. <laughs> Mike Thurman has been talking about this book for a really long time. <laughs> twenty-seven <laughs> years, actually, Bill. It's been twenty-seven years. I'm not like Tia. I don't know how to meet deadlines. But yeah, but Tia is very good at that. Years. Tia, let's uh, <laughs> let's turn first not to uh, the uh, uh, action up in Washington, but let's talk about this. this. Is the starting day of the legislative session? Here in Georgia, as is most often the case, they'll gavel in at 10 o'clock. They already have this morning, and uh, they don't have a lot of business. They'll probably conclude within an hour, but they do have some big, big issues that could be addressed here. One of them is, for the first time, it appears there's a movement among some Republicans, including the leadership, some in the leadership, to have a full expansion of Medicaid in Georgia. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, peace to all of the press corps up there doing work, (laughs) not just at the AJC, but all of the different news organizations that are going to have a busy session. As far as Medicaid expansion, I have said all along, Medicaid expansion is inevitable in all 50 states. It's just a matter of when. And again, just like with regular Medicaid, The southern states are usually the last adopters um, for reasons that, quite frankly, come down to poverty and race and conservatism. Um, But the fact that it might be Georgia's turn is quite interesting. Again, they're looking at other southern states as models. But again, it's inevitable because eventually they're going to wise up that They're leaving a lot of money on the table and they're hearing from hospitals and doctors who are saying, please stop leaving this money on the table. We need it. Sam, um, you know, as well as uh, the rest of us, that for quite a long time, Republicans in Georgia and as as Tia points out, often in southern states, rejected the idea of a full expansion of Medicaid. Here in Georgia, uh, governors like Nathan Deal, Brian Kemp have said that their concern is that while the federal government picks up an enormous amount of the uh, cost of a full expansion, they're worried that it's going to cost the state more money and more money as uh, years go by. But why do you think the mood might be changing now, Sam? Well, first of all, uh, with regard to Tia's comment, uh, I think it's inevitable, hopefully, that I'll have grandchildren, but I'm not sure it's sometime soon. (laughs) So um, I I think there are more Republicans talking about it, Bill, but I think that many Republicans, especially in the state Senate, are going to be reluctant to have that discussion prior to the results of this November. Um, Former President Trump keeps talking about wanting to have another model, and I just think that um, 
many, special, especially the state senators, are going to wait to see what happens in that race uh, before they uh, jump on the bandwagon. I think that's really an interesting observation, Michael, because um, Sam is right. Uh, Donald Trump has once again injected into his campaign the fact that he intends to overturn Obamacare, an issue which he uh, could not stop talking about during his campaign in 2016 20, and, and, and could not, though, get past uh, in uh, the Congress, the effort to overturn it. So this does sort of slow down how Republicans may feel about this issue right now. Uh, yes, but let me interject something here in Georgia. $16 billion. Uh, that's the surplus that the governor and the legislators will be pro uh, managing uh, during this session. Also, Bill, the uh, disenrollment of more than 300,000 Georgians. Mm -hmm. 86% of them are children. So think about this. Today's school bail's wrong. 200,000 children are now in our public schools who are not insured. It's literally a ticking medical time bomb. Uh, we've been working in the cab to try to help uh, re-enroll uh, thousands that have been disenrolled. But you have 300,000 Georgians over 200,000 children who've done nothing wrong, who are now uninsured, but in school at a point where we are seeing, not since the pandemic, huge increases uh, in flu and in influenza, COVID and RSV all taking place and children uninsured. Michael, before we move on, help us understand that number. Um, give, give us the context. Um, these are people, the, the, um, the, the Biden administration during COVID, I think it was the Biden administration, maybe, or maybe the Trump administration was part of it as well. I don't know that for a fact. But Medicaid um, was extended broadly uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. And um, <clears throat> once the uh, uh, epidemic was declared officially over, uh, people were told if they wanted to get back into the Medicaid system, they'd have to re-enroll. Many people didn't even understand they had to do that. Many people didn't know how to fill out the form. Have I got that right? Yes, uh, absolutely. And during the pandemic, for three years, people did not have to re-enroll. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's a federal rule saying, well, now you do. And what we've discovered is primarily is that people are being disenrolled for administrative reasons. You know, some may not qualify, some may now have private insurance, but the great majority of the folk who are not now insured are for administrative reasons. And, and I'll re-emphasize this because it's so important, 86% of the Georgians who are not now covered are children. Mm. Tia? Well, I want to go back to what we were talking about as far as Medicaid expansion. Well, actually, I wanted to go back to what we teased earlier about Chris Carr and ask you, as a former Attorney General, Sam, how common was it in your day to join on cases 
regarding other states? Because to me, that seems such a trend, particularly among the Republican attorneys general. We saw it in 2020 with the whole brief in the Texas case. Is is that just something that we're paying more attention to and it always happens or is that newer? So, Tia, I am going to ask you to put that on the table just for a little while because we're going to oh, we're spend a good— Oh, we're coming back to that. Yeah, we're going to come back to that. Oh, so thank see, you. I didn't know we had it's, Sam all hour. I was trying to get it in. I understand that completely, and I'm eager to hear what he has to say about that too. But let's put that—we're going to do that in the next oh. segment of the show. Okay, so we're going to stick with the legislature. For a little all while. Right. So let me—in fact, Sam, here's what's interesting about what they're talking about, as you know. Um, you think that this thing is going to be slowed down because of the election. I get that. But we're talking now about the potential for a deal that might bring the lieutenant governor on board, who's got a certain amount of power in the state Senate, if it, a deal that would allow for the full expansion of Medicaid in exchange for major changes or even a possible elimination of what we know as certificates of need, which are now necessary to expand hospitals into parts of the state without uh, approval uh, to move forward, to sort of keep uh, competition from getting out of control. Do you think that this trade-off, certificates of need for Medicaid expansion, has some potential to gain um, uh, ground? So I think the apparent linkage between the Arkansas model and changes to CON does in fact have some weight behind it. But with regard to what Mike said before, the Arkansas model was very different than the general expansion model. That's private insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, But from a Georgia perspective, I think Mike would agree with me, it would still be a significant increase in the number of Georgians that would be able to take advantage of that legislation and a significant increase of Georgians that would then have access to healthcare. So I think it is very interesting. I think it's too soon to tell whether the Lieutenant Governor and um, folks like uh, Grady can push uh, a scenario forward, but it's clearly gonna be one of the most interesting parts of the session. So sorry for jumping the gun on that other topic, but I do have a legislative question um, about the school voucher issue. And I'm interested both um, CEO Thurman, AG Olins, what's the history with Georgia? I'm, I'm surprised Georgia doesn't even have charter schools, let alone this voucher program. Well, I guess, are there charter? I'm a newbie. Yeah. So help me understand yeah. why Georgia is an outlier with when it comes to school choice. It's so limited. Um, Mike Thurman, you having been the superintendent of the DeKalb County School System should take the first crack at this. <laughs> well, back on Medicaid expansion, because this is important to me as very person. <laughs> I'm very encouraged by some of the discussions I've heard on the House side from Speaker Burns and some of the leaders in the House. Hope springs eternal under the gold dome, so we'll see. But now to Ms. Mitchell's question. So y'all um, just refuse to let me change the subject today. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. I'm changing the subject. Now, as it relates to school vouchers, <laughs> and Bill, that was like seven, eight years ago when I was superintendent. But there are state 
authorized charters within the state of Georgia. They are local and state. And Georgia has been, there's been an effort each year to expand or increase the amount of state dollars that are being invested into choice or charter schools. And actually it's gaining more headway uh, over the last three or four years. Uh, what you had, I think, during Governor Deal's administration, because Mrs. Deal was such a strong advocate for reading and public education, uh, the governor uh, protected the investments in public schools, much to his credit. And I think we all know that that originated with our former first lady, an amazing lady who came to the cab and read to my kids on many occasions. She was a public school teacher. She believed in public education and consequently Governor Deal did. In recent years, some of that advocacy has dissipated. And I'll let Sam, let the AG speak a little bit now. Well, That's my thought. Sam, uh, let me throw it to you. Um, we know that last session there was an effort to pass a new voucher bill that did pick up some momentum and very late in the session uh governor kemp signed off on it but it wasn't it didn't happen quickly enough or early enough to get even a number i think 16 republicans voted against expanding to school vouchers in georgia but it's certainly going to come back this session again sam yeah so first going back to tia because i don't want her to you know get a little doll and put pins in it you know so i i need to get back to her question um we have charter schools through public schools we have charter throughs through the state school board and we have some minimal other schools through some other changes in state law uh bill you're 100 correct there were um an insufficient number of republican legislators for the bill to pass last session it sort of reminds me of the same uh mix regarding sports betting, where it doesn't have a, a significant number of Republican legislators. The common talking points have a lot of mis and disinformation because you can, in fact, do such legislation without in any way, shape, or form reducing dollars to public school systems. So a lot of the talk is, frankly, from individuals who haven't um, sufficiently looked at the bill, but it is going to be a, a challenge again this year. Uh, and I think the, the 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 days of the Republican legislators seeking to do minimal change and opening it up to a minimum number of students have gone. They now want to make a, a much broader change in the state. Sam, let me jump in real quick and ask you a follow-up real quickly. Um, our understanding typically of a school voucher program is that the money follows the student the uh, money that, we, that student was in, you know, got from the state. There's a, a state uh, a formula for each individual student would follow to the private school. Are you saying that measures that are um, now going to be debated won't do that? That 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 it will not affect public school funding? Well, it, it only affects the state dollars that go to the public schools. So in theory, if that student is not being educated by the local school system, the local school system is still receiving the local monies, despite the fact it doesn't need to teach that student. Okay, Mike. And, and I want to, one thing I did remember, uh, the most recent legislation failed 
because it failed to secure the support of some key Republican legislators yeah. uh, right. in the General Assembly. And I need to recall and, and really shout out Lisa Morgan from the GAE who really went to work with other advocates there uh, with her. And they were able to build a coalition between the Democratic and Republican <laughs> legislators, particularly legislators from rural Georgia. And one of the things I learned, Bill, uh, in many of the rural counties, those jobs and those schools are real important. And it it, it really uh, rejects that idea that it, that white legislators are by and large all support charters because it's just not true. And, and CEO Thurman, you actually, that's exactly what I was going to ask, because the reason why the voucher legislation failed is because there were some, I'm assuming, rural, mostly Republican lawmakers who uh, voted with Democrats against it. So can you talk about why there is still hesitation and particularly in 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 rural Georgia? Why is there that hesitation when it comes to vouchers? Because usually it's seen that Democrats in unions are opposed well, one Friday nights in rural Georgia uh, is 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 when the entire community come together. Doesn't matter whether you're black, white, Republican, or Democrat. Folks love their high schools, and particularly high school football. But also, typically, the school district is the number one job creator in rural Georgia. And the last thing you want to do, number one, is take edu uh, opportunity away from young people. But you don't want to undermine that employment base either. Um, all right. Um, I want to take up one more issue before we have to get to a break. We're going to be talking about legislative session for the next 40 working days of the session, certainly well through March. Um, but one, one other issue we need to take up today, Sam, because I know it's one that's uh, been important for you, is the legislature is still not able to pass a bill that would establish a definition for anti-Semitism. It's important to the supporters because if you can define it in law, it becomes much clearer that you can use it in hate crimes prosecutions. You worked, Sam Olins, I believe, pro bono on getting the hate crimes bill passed by the General Assembly several sessions ago. And I know that you're very eager to see them do something about the anti-Semitism definition. So I think it's it's frankly really hard to have a definition of anti-Semitism. What is sought in HB 30 is guidance. It uses uh, a recommendation that's commonly applied throughout the country, the IHRC definition from the Holocaust experts. Uh, but it's guidance. At the end of the day, it still provides only guidance to prosecutors. It, it's my understanding that some discussions have had between uh, the House sponsors and uh, some very influential senators, and that there's apt to be uh, maybe as early as this week um, a revised bill in the Senate uh, that would hopefully move this bill uh, much along to success this session. Uh, I do, however, think that there is no silver bullet. Uh, it's always going to be a, a guidance-specific you know, legislation. Tia, one of the problems has been, for those who oppose it, and it passed the House, it's the Senate where it's, it was held up, is that um, some believe that the definition that is being used um, would make it um, uh, 
anti-Semitic to criticize the state of Israel. The fact of the matter is, if you read the definition they're using, criticism of Israel would have to be really extreme before it would be considered anti-Semitic. Well, I think from what I've read is that there's just some concern if it's subjective, then what someone says is fair criticism, someone else could say is extreme criticism, and then, you know, putting themselves, you know, susceptible to prosecution under this new law. And you can say, well, that's crazy. That's an outlier. But you've got people who protested uh, a public safety center who caught RICO charges because they operated a bail fund. So uh, I could see some people being, you know, a little hesitant when the devil are in the details and something that could be left up to interpretation. But what do you guys think, especially um, Sam? When someone says from the river to the sea, that means to kill all Jews. That doesn't mean destroy Israel. Destroy Israel would be a small part of that. When someone says we need to have a global intifada, that doesn't mean destroy Israel. That means destroy Jews. So what you've got here is people using language that they know exactly what it means, but they will not come forward in an honest fashion to disclose what it means. It's very dishonorable. Uh, you know, the, the the issues are no longer should there be a state of Israel. You have folks openly protesting uh, Jewish existence. And our country, you know, when we said never again, many of us never thought we'd be having these discussions now. But unfortunately, we have to. Sam, I've got to get to a break. But I do need to ask you this. I know this is a very raw question. To what extent do you think those who will not support a definition of anti-Semitism either have a lack of understanding of what it means to be Jewish and face potential hate crimes, to, to be the subject of, uh, of uh, prejudice, of bigotry that, that can become uh, pernicious in a, in a dangerous way? Or is there overt anti-Semitism that's preventing this measure from moving forward? So I think most of the folks that have opposed the language, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they, they have a an, an issue that they're seeking to work out. But I do think we're seeing around the country more and more folks, especially utilizing social media, that have no problem saying it's time once again to get rid of Jews. All right, Sam Olins, that's a chilling way to end this segment, but we do have to move on. We're going to take our first break right now, but when we come back, Tia Mitchell, we're going to pick up the uh, subject that you were eager to get to, which is the fact that uh, Chris Carr, the Attorney General of Georgia, has filed an amicus brief with a number of other AGs asking the U.S. Supreme Court to put Donald Trump back on the Colorado ballot. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. 
Twice Daily delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tia Mitchell, Sam Olins, former state attorney general, and Michael Thurman, now CEO of DeKalb County, are discussing issues with us today. Tia, Chris Carr became one of a number of AGs in Republican-controlled states that filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief with the U.S. Supreme Court. We know the U.S. Supreme Court has now agreed to take up the question of whether Colorado State Supreme Court acted correctly when it removed Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot. Chris Carr, who has not been a good friend of Donald Trump's, joined that suit uh, saying if we allow this to happen for the uh, president, former president to be excluded from ballot, it would create chaos. The brief that they filed also says that courts over many, many years have tried to stay out of politics, but when they do get into politics, uh, there are very specific guidelines uh, by which they do it. And we won't get into, we're going to post their actual uh, amicus brief online. But the point is, uh, Carr thinks that uh, Trump should be on every ballot because that's what the Supreme Court's going to end up deciding. Yeah. And and so I want to go back to my question for um, Sam from earlier in the show, which is, is this a relatively new phenomenon for attorneys generals to kind of intervene in various states, or is that just something that maybe is just getting a little bit more attention as we're in the age of Donald Trump and election denialism? And there are a lot more, I guess, cases of the states that get more attention. So this process actually started by both parties uh, under President Obama. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats started the Amici Games uh, with regard to much litigation, and it's only increased over the years. Um, I, I think at one point, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to need to, frankly, reconsider the definition of standing, because some of this litigation, frankly, should be limited uh, by numerous parties that don't have a uh, a real injury, shall we say, using the legal context of the word injury. Uh, I do think that it was a very tricky issue for General Carr based on the fact that he has had significant disagreement with the former president and numerous attorneys general who have blindly um, gone along with the conspiracy theory. I do agree, however, with General Carr that these types of decisions uh, really need um, decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court because the issue that is live now in Colorado and Maine could easily return four years from now by Democrats and Republicans based on who the potential nominees are at that time. So I think the the issue is one that needs to have uh, clarity so that neither party, frankly, can be so quick to do this. 
Uh, Sam, just a quick side note. I can recall any number, I shouldn't say any number, at least a number of amicus briefs that you did file joining other AGs. Quite often, in a bipartisan way, you filed a, a, a friend of the court brief that would allow for legislatures to have a prayer when they start their session. But more significantly, you were part of a uh, an amicus filing which said that lawmakers, not federal judges, should determine uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So you certainly were part of that process during your time as AG. So I probably signed off on about 50% of the potential, shall we say, opportunities. Uh, when I thought it was totally partisan, I said no. Uh, and my office said no. But I do think over the years, the uh, executive branch tries to take on more and more authority. And I think the legislative branch has been MIA, mainly look at last year. I mean, my God, you know, when, when the legislative branch is that week last year, it's an opening for the executive branch to, to be more powerful. But I, I do think it, it frankly is scary from a constitutional perspective if states get to decide major issues in federal elections it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, clarity should be proffered uh, so that both sides know the rules. So, Mike, let's get talk about the specifics of what's happening right now. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments uh, on Colorado on February 8th, but it will also affect Maine, where the Secretary of State ruled that uh, Trump should not be on the ballot there. And it is a thorny issue, Mike. There are those who say, look, Donald Trump participated in an insurrection. Some people argue he didn't, but 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 the many of the arguments are that he was definitely encouraging violence to stop the proceedings that would officially declare uh, Biden president, and he should be held accountable for that. On the other hand, it's what Sam Olin says. Shouldn't voters in the long run be the ones who decide this issue and if Trump is kicked off of state ballots, what does that say, as Sam says, about efforts that could happen in the future with a Democratic candidate for president? I agree that the ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court should resolve these issues uh, that may arise in the various states. That, that's the process. That's the legal process. And so we have to accept that and Typically, what we've done as a nation, once the Supreme Court speaks, whether it's on affirmative action or a woman's uh, right to choose, whether we agree with it or not, we accept it uh, as having been spoken by the highest court in the land. And I expect us to follow suit in this regard. Uh, I don't now, as to the friend of court or amicus briefs that are filed, uh, there are two things. One, of course, there may be a live current legal issue. But also, we have to not ignore the fact that it's politics. And I see what this really means to me is that Donald Trump's support is solidifying <coughs> across his nation. And initially, those who may have been hesitant about his candidacy, uh, particularly in the Republican Party, I see the Republican Party coalescing, despite DeSantis and, and Nikki Haley, coalescing behind Donald Trump and accepting, uh, either whether it's enthusiastically or not, that uh, he is going to be the Republican nominee for president this year. 
Um, I wanted to ask how much I think I've kind of talked about this on the show before. It seems that the part of the problem is that because particularly in Congress, there is so much gridlock that keeps Congress from legislating this issues more and more courts are being asked, you know, so you talk, Sam, I think, talked about it'd be great if there could be some clarity on standing, which I know is a court issue. But like when we talk about elections laws and standards and things like that, it's like there isn't really the law in place. So courts keep getting asked to weigh in. But is am I looking at it in the wrong way? I guess I'll start with you, Sam. Well, Sam, let me jump in and say that's exactly what the United States Supreme Court is going to be asked to decide. Should they, in fact, finally fill a vacuum which has existed forever in terms of the uh, uh, things that could disqualify someone from running for president? So as Mike's aware of, there's a longstanding um, doctrine called the political doctrine which is where the Supreme Court seeks to run away from as many political decisions as possible. They are now unfortunately faced with several appeals where uh, I'm hard pressed to find how they don't rule on the issue. Uh, and I think the, the efforts to avoid a political issue are becoming harder and harder. Um, I, I don't see any way that they don't rule in the Colorado case in a clear manner. Um, other cases such as Mifepristone, um, they could in fact have a ruling that brings it back to lower courts, et cetera. Um, but I think the Supreme Court is clearly hindered by a significant number of perceived partisan issues rather than legal issues. And I think that the Chief Justice in particular really abhors those types of, of, of issues. Uh, but it's going to be very hard that this next six months to not get involved in those issues. And, and as Mike alluded to, but wasn't as direct as he could have been, that's not good for democracy. I mean, democracy works best when we don't have that sharp edge of partisanship and where we actually try and solve problems. But I think... Uh, more and more folks aren't interested in focusing on compromise. All right. So let me, before we get to a break, get you both on the record on this. Mike Thurman, should Donald Trump be excluded by courts from appearing on a ballot in a given state or not? Well, the Constitution presupposes that if a person is found to be guilty or having engaged in insurrectionist uh, activities, that law provides that they can be excluded. But what about your personal fact? What's your personal take on that? Do you think he but, should be excluded? Depends on the facts and what occurred in each state. <laughs> each state has that right. I can't say what happened. I don't know what happened in Maine, but if in fact he engaged in insurrectionist activities and it's, if a court finds that to be true, then they have a right to find him or remove him from a ballot so, based on those facts. And he has a right to appeal that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Sam, is is do you want that to be decided by voters or should the courts have a role in this? I think the court has a role to define the parameters 
and that that needs to come first. And based on their decision, states may have a large role thereafter. Do you personally think Trump should be on every ballot, um, despite the fact that some say he's an insurrectionist? So he doesn't need to be found guilty of insurrection right. to be an insurrectionist. I think that's clear based on the history of that section of the 14th Amendment. I, I'm similar to Mike. I am not comfortable defining whether he is an insurrectionist or not. I can clearly state, as I'm sure Mike would agree, that the actions of January 6th were totally abhorrent and inconsistent with our Constitution. But I'm uncomfortable making that statement. Okay. Um, thank you for uh, that conversation. We got to get to our final break. When we come back to you, I got some questions to ask you about Marjorie Taylor Greene and about the Vice President of the United States. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That gives you all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper, and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you always know what's really going on. Michael Thurman, Sam Olins are still with us. Tia Mitchell, uh, let's talk about uh, two women in the news. Let's start with Vice President Kamala Harris. She's going to be, you broke this story, in Georgia again tomorrow, emphasizing how important this state is in November. Yeah, I think it's interesting. She was just here in December for the Celebration Bowl, and now she'll be back tomorrow, which is Tuesday, to talk about voting rights. Um, Lately, the Biden-Harris administration particularly on the campaign side, have really been focusing on the the theme of preserving democracy, creating that contrast with former President Trump. Um, we don't know a lot about what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I started getting text messages like, do you know who she's meeting with? Because apparently a lot of the usual suspects when it comes to voting rights in Georgia either hadn't yet been asked or, you know, we're keeping it close to the vest. But we know she's coming. We know she's going to be talking about voting rights. And again, the fact that this is her 10th trip and her second trip in less than a month shows how important Georgia is. Michael Thurman, I, I would imagine, um, I'm speculating that the timing of this visit isn't coincidental. Today, President Biden gives a speech in Charleston at Mother Emanuel Church in an effort to encourage black voters to get mobilized 
uh, for his campaign, something that people think uh, could be problematic for him. So the fact that Kamala Harris comes tomorrow to a, a state that where black voters are very important, maybe not coincidental. Oh, absolutely not. And I'm happy and encouraged that she's coming and that she's made Georgia a priority. The Biden administration is making Georgia a priority. Bill, I think people are underestimating uh, the vice president, to be quite honest with you, because I've seen her and watched her and and uh, she's making inroads and I think generating some uh, excitement that has been lacking in the campaign. Uh, so I'm happy to see her here. And uh, hopefully she'll meet with some, particularly the grassroots organizers, uh, to make sure that there is and will be a significant turnout. I just believe when it gets to Biden and Trump, uh, you're going to see much more uh, energy and a coalition coalition of voters uh, coming out to support Biden in November. Tia, you've covered uh, the vice president for some time. Do you think that uh, Michael Thurman makes a good observation that she, when she gets out there on the campaign trail or in whatever public appearances she makes, uh, is a more positive force than some people give her credit for being? I do. And I also think that she's better when she gets on a subject matter that she's passionate about. Um, You know, sometimes she has been accused or the perceived as not always connecting. But I think on certain issues, she really does connect with certain audiences. You know, I think she did a great job when she was going and talking to young people in her college campus tour. And I think that's a a population that she really did well connecting with. When the topic was abortion and access to abortion, I think she really did a great job connecting with the subject matter and therefore having really powerful speeches. So I think both she and the White House believe that this issue, again, of um, voting rights is one of those issues that will give her a chance to connect. So we'll see um, how it goes. But I think that it, 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 it is it's going to give her an opportunity to shine. Sam, your public career, your public life, you uh, identified as a Republican since Donald Trump and the MAGA movement came along. You've disassociated yourself, I think, formally from uh, the party. So I'm curious what you think about the effort now that President Biden began uh, late last week, Friday, actually, um, when he uh, talked in a very powerful speech about Donald Trump as a threat to our democracy. The campaign seems to think that's a theme that will resonate, but I'm wondering if you think that's true, whether or not that's going to motivate voters to turn out to vote for Joe Biden. Well, whether it motivates them or not, I don't think he can avoid that discussion. I think he needs to bring it up often. Uh, I also think that uh, he might want to keep talking about Biden economics and just talk about the number of jobs and benefits to the economy. Uh, You know, I frankly wasn't thrilled with the term Obamacare. I'm not thrilled with the term Biden economics. I I don't elect a president for cute phrases. Um, And so I don't like it, whether it's an R or a D. I think the the other issue, Bill, is um, with regard to Kamala Harris, we don't know who the Republican nominee will choose as their VP nominee. 
And that could have a major effect on the November election. Mike, what do you think about settling on this theme of democracy uh, being threatened? Uh, it, it strikes me that um, Maureen Dowd wrote a column this weekend in which she said, look, voters already know out there um, the downsides of Donald Trump. But the his base and maybe independents in a lot of the polling don't care that uh, he tried to overturn the 2020 uh, election results and many of the other things that have happened since then. So can you really sell democracy at risk to Georgia voters? The biggest threat to Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he said, no one else said it, he said that uh, day one he's going to be a dictator. I mean, you know, Biden not making this up. Uh, he's just parroting what is being spoken by uh, former President Trump. And I believe people are paying attention, uh, maybe not so much in January, but I think as this thing caught, you know, moves forward and we get to a decision point, American voters are going to have to make a, a very historic decision. All right, uh, Tia, as long as we're talking about uh, threats to democracy, uh, you had a very interesting story. Marjorie Taylor Greene, I guess it was over the weekend, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, it went down, she had a book signing at a county in Florida where initially it was going to be held at a resort, but there the, the resort canceled her appearance there. Explain what happened. So this was a story that NBC News actually broke, but, you know, we were monitoring it over the weekend. Uh, for those who aren't aware, Marjorie Taylor Greene published a memoir of, so to speak, um, last fall. So she's been having these periodic book signings. She does a lot in Florida um, where, you know, I think it's a ripe ground of retirees with money who also are pretty conservative. Donald Trump being a Florida resident, he's kind of started to attract like-minded people who want to move to Florida. Um, and so she holds these book signings, but this particular one was with the Osceola County Republican Party. And it was not just marketed as a Marjorie Taylor Greene book signing. What um, NBC News reported was that it was marketed as, you know, also a commemoration of the third anniversary of January 6th. We know Marjorie Taylor Greene has been part of the conservative rewriting of the narrative of January 6th. And so Westgate Resorts was going to be the site of that. Westgate is um, it's a privately owned um, resort. So there were actual people who own it, not just some corporation. And when they found out the ties to January 6th, they canceled the event. Um, but if you are paying attention to Marjorie Taylor Greene's social media, like I do, you will see she still went to Osceola County. It looked like she ended up at almost like a daycare. There was like a, a dollhouse behind her and little small little chairs and children's toys. But she had her books and she was signing them. And she said, you know, the woke leftist didn't win. She still had her books. She talked about the fact that commies lost because she was able to do uh, the books. You know, this almost reminds me of the uh, famous Rudolph Giuliani news conference, which was at a Four Seasons uh, mm -hmm. garden shop, not the Four Seasons Hotel with Marjorie Taylor Greene in this uh, daycare setting. One last thing to you before we leave the subject of MTG, you're going to be heading to Iowa. You're packing your bags. 
you're going to be heading out there, I think, Friday. And one of the people you're going to be following is Marjorie Taylor Greene, who will be there as a surrogate for Donald Trump with the caucuses next Monday, a week from tonight. Yeah. And also, Representative Rich McCormick is going as a surrogate for Ron DeSantis. And we know other people from Georgia may be going. Patricia will be going to Iowa as well. So we'll be giving you some reports on the ground from the first caucus. Patricia Murphy, of course, is going there, too. Sam Mullins, real quickly, you used to do uh, surrogate work. Mitt Romney was a a particularly uh, 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 important candidate for president for you. Do you ever miss being engaged in that mix? I miss having candidates like Mitt Romney to support. I think that's the major issue. Uh, I like people who get stuff done. I like people who want to work with others. Mike Thurman, before we have to leave, will you be out there working to uh, try to get Georgia to elect Joe Biden? I'm all here for Uncle Joe. Uh, he'll be reelected president in November this year. You heard it here first, Bill. All right. Michael Thurman, Sam Mullen, Steve Mitchell, I really appreciate the conversation today. We're out of time for today's show. But before we leave you, let me remind you that if you have a question for us that you'd like us to answer, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline, leave a question. We'll play it back on Fridays uh, during our listener mailbag segment. The number is 404-526-2527. We'd love to answer your question. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.